Hello, everyone. This is Gerald Salenti, and we're very, very honored today to have with us Mr. Scott Ritter. Back in the day, I remember Scott Ritter, and he was a man that spoke out against the Iraq War and what was going on, like just about no one. And how I admired so much his bravery, his knowledge, and his care of what he did and how hard he tried to stop a war based on lies launched by George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, and a whole bunch of criminal gang that so many people knew that were lies about Saddam Hussein having weapons of mass destruction and ties to Al-Qaeda. So thank you so much, Mr. Ritter, for being here today. And please give the people a little bit of background about yourself and, and, uh, and, and your knowledge of the system. <laughs> system. <laughs> well, I guess I was born into the system. My father was a career Air Force officer, and um, I was raised around the world as, a, as an Air Force brat. I went to high school in uh, Hawaii, Turkey, and Germany. Uh, the, the importance of the last two is the reason why we were in Turkey and Germany was because of the Cold War. And uh, both Turkey and Germany were outposts of the United States um, in the front lines against the Soviet Union um, in, the, in the Cold War. So I was very much a child of the Cold War. Growing, growing up an Air Force brat with the, uh, the Soviet threat being you know, broadcast every day, I, I decided to follow my father's footsteps. I went to college. Uh, got uh, got a degree in Russian history, following under the precepts of Sun Tzu, the art of war, know your enemy as yourself. So I would study the Russians, uh, their culture, their literature, their history, their language, uh, in, in preparation to go off to war and kill them. I joined the Marine Corps for the sole purpose of closing with and destroying the Soviet enemy through firepower maneuver. Um, and for two and a half years, I worked in the deserts of 29 Palms, California, uh, learning the trade of war, learning how to fight the Soviets. And um, as soon as I mastered my art, then Mikhail Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan go and sign the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty in December of 1987, uh, which basically eliminated entire categories of nuclear weapons. And the Soviet Union went from being the enemy to being somebody that I would have to learn to cooperate with for disarmament. I was picked to uh, be one of the first inspectors to go into the Soviet Union and uh, implement the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. And wow. I spent two years working outside of a Soviet missile factory in Vodkensk. Wow. And um, it was an eye-opening experience. So one of the other things that happened is the INF Treaty, for the first time, incorporated on-site inspection as a verification means of, uh, of, 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 of determining whether or not somebody is in compliance with the treaty. It had never been done before. So I was among the inspectors that literally wrote the book on on-site inspection. And, uh, when my time with uh, the on-site inspection agency ended in uh, July of 1990, um, I went back to the Marine Corps right in time for Saddam Hussein to invade Kuwait. And um, I became caught up in the war, as did many and ended up being assigned to General Norman Schwarzkopf's staff as an intelligence officer uh, in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And because of my experience in the Soviet Union with missiles, I was given the Scud portfolio. So my, my one of my jobs was to 
work with the U.S. Air Force and Coalition Special Forces to hunt down and uh, interdict uh, Iraqi Scud missiles before they could be launched against either Israel or the Gulf Arab states. Um, I finished with what they call a good war, and what that means is um, I lived, and I came out with a good reputation of, of a man who could do his job. Uh, but when I left, when, when, when the war ended, I went back to the Marine Corps, and I was struggling with um, you know, what my purpose as a Marine was anymore, uh, you know, because I wasn't joking when I talked about being a child of the Cold War and joining the Marine Corps to kill Russians. Literally, that's what the Cold War was about, being prepared to stand up to the Soviet threat. And yet now I just spent the last two years being friend, friends with the, with the Russians, and the, the, the Cold War was over. Um, there was no need for me to continue down this path. There was really, you know, in the intelligence business, uh, in the Cold War, the ultimate jobs were either uh, with what was called the military liaison mission operating out of Potsdam, uh, East Germany, outside of Berlin, uh, to spy on the Soviet group of forces in Germany. It was a very elite job, uh, and that's what I wanted to do. I also wanted to be a defense attache in Moscow, um, who would travel around Russia sneaking away from the KGB to get close to uh, targets of intelligence value so I could take photographs and stuff like that. Wow. We weren't doing that anymore. So I was left saying, well, what is, what is the purpose? My, I just fought my war. Um, I, you know, I, I served my country. Maybe it's time for me to get out of the Marine Corps and, and pursue, um, you know, a different life. So I, I actually left the Marine Corps with an eye on, um, working in the former Soviet Union uh, as the uh, country manager for H.J. Uh, Heinz uh, Food Processing Company. You might know them as the tomato people. Um, and I was going to help um, install and manage food processing plants in, the, in southern Russia. Uh, I thought it was going to be a fascinating job. But in August of uh, 1991, there was a coup that overthrew Gorbachev and um, Yeltsin, Boris Yeltsin became famous for jumping on a tank who was overthrown. But because of the unrest and the turmoil and the uncertainty, H.J. Hines withdrew from the Soviet, uh, from the Soviet project and I was unemployed. And uh, at the moment of my greatest uh, concern about being unemployed, I got a phone call from a colonel I used to work for in, um, in Russia. He was now the chief of staff for the, uh, for the United Nations Special Commission in Iraq, which was tasked with performing on-site inspections in Iraq to oversee the disarmament of Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. Originally, they, they built the inspection process along the lines of the INF Treaty uh, on the notion that the Iraqis would provide a declaration that listed the totality of their WMD, and then the inspectors would go in in a very gentlemanly fashion to confirm the declaration was complete and then to oversee the, um, the, the account here, the dismemberment, the dis disarming, dismantlement of these weapons of mass destruction. Um, that's how the INF Treaty worked with the United States and the, uh, the Soviets providing declarations, et cetera. Well, the Iraqis lied. They, um, they failed to declare entire programs. They failed to declare a biological weapons program. They failed to declare a nuclear weapons program. They underdeclared their chemical weapons capability. They underdeclared their ballistic missile capability. And so now the, these inspectors had to come up with a new way of doing business. And it was be intelligence driven because if the Iraqis are hiding capability, then we have to find it. 
the Iraqis aren't going to give it to us. We have to search it out. So I was brought in to create an intelligence unit within the United Nations that would receive information from other nations, organize inspections, and then go off into Iraq and searching for these, this hidden capability. And for seven years, I did that job. And uh, I, I went into Iraq more than 40 times, uh, 14 of them as a chief weapons inspector, meaning I was in charge of the, uh, of the wow. team. I was the, the lead liaison for foreign intelligence. I worked with the CIA, British MI6, Israeli intelligence, German intelligence, Jordanian intelligence. Um, and uh, we, we, we did the job. I mean, it was a very difficult job. Um, we were confronted the whole time with the fact that the United States did not want us to succeed. <laughs> they, they were looking at the inspection process as a means of undermining Saddam Hussein, um, as opposed to actually disarming Iraq. Because see, if you disarmed Iraq, sanctions would be lifted. If sanctions were lifted, then Saddam could get back to the business of being Saddam. The U.S. wanted to keep sanctions in place, which meant that the more I tried to succeed at my job, the more I became a threat to the United States. Wow. And so in August of 1998, I resigned my position as a, as a, with the United Nations Special Commission, and I started speaking out against um, a U.S. policy. And since that time, I guess I've, uh, I've gained a reputation for being um, a contrarian when it comes to... Uh, uh, U.S. policy in the Middle East and uh, U.S. arms control policy, et cetera. Not because I hate my country. I love my country. I joined the Marine Corps and I was willing to die for my country. Um, and I've served my country honorably. But, you know, a, a citizen's job isn't to sit back and let the government do anything they want to. The citizen's job is to empower themselves with knowledge and information and hold their government to account if they're deviating from the norms and values that we claim to embrace as a, as a people. So um, I'm, I'm pretty proud of the fact that I've been speaking out. Now on the issue of Ukraine, as I, as I mentioned, um, I used to train to fight the Soviets and Soviet doctrine is similar to Russian doctrine today. I'm a student of Russian military history. I, I've worked in the Soviet Union and I have, uh, I have contacts in the past and continued contacts with the Soviet military, et cetera. So I'm very familiar with Russian doctrine, the Russian military um, and, and, and things of that nature. So when this conflict uh, started, I felt that I was in a position to accurately assess um, what, what, what was actually going on in the ground in the face of what was an overwhelming amount of politicized information coming from the mainstream media uh, that seeks to tell the narrative from a Ukrainian perspective in a manner that doesn't necessarily reflect the actuality of what's taking place. So I've, uh, I've been speaking out lately about what I believe uh, could be happening on the ground. I, I need to make it clear that um, while a lot of people talk about the Russian playbook, um, I don't have it. <laughs> so I can't tell you what's in the Russian playbook. I don't think anybody has it. Uh, they haven't published a playbook. And when people talk about the intent of Vladimir Putin. Um, I don't have a phone that I can pick up and call Vladimir Putin and ask him what his intent is. And I don't think any of the people who speak of Putin have that either. So there's a lot of a lot of people out there proclaiming that they have special insight into the thinking of the Russian leader and into the um, the plans of the Russian military leadership. They don't. I don't either. What I do have is a history of experience about the Russian military that allows me to look at a map to assess information and determine whether or not that is consistent with 
what I understand the facts to be, or if it deviates to such an extent that maybe we have to question whether or not this information is accurate. So what do you see going on? Well, what I see going on right now is, um, is, is a Russian response that is uh, decades in the making. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people that say that what Putin has done in Ukraine is a very um, impetuous, uh, rash act. That it's a gamble that that Putin is, is is gambled, and this this creates the notion of a leader who is is a risk taker, who's 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 not certain of where he stands, who is confronted with a problem and is seeking to take a shortcut to a solution. No, this is a problem that has been in the making since the nineteen since nineteen ninety seven when uh, NATO began its process of of, of expanding, um, allowing former. Warsaw Pact nations into the uh, NATO alliance uh, and gradually moving towards the border with Russia. This is a problem that uh, has been ongoing since 1999 when Boris Yeltsin stepped aside and brought in Vladimir Putin as the president of, uh, of Russia. Boris Yeltsin, of course, ran Russia during the decades of the 90s in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, who allowed the United States and other countries to run roughshod over Russian sovereignty, yeah. to view Russia as an economic opportunity uh, for carpetbaggers to come in and rob Russia blind, who empowered a class of oligarchs who stole Russia's wealth and made it their own. Um, and the United States was all too happy with Yeltsin. And when Yeltsin stepped aside and brought in Vladimir Putin, Vladimir Putin said, we're no longer playing that game. Russia's a sovereign state. We're going to assert our sovereign, um, our, our sovereign control over our own economy, et cetera, people in the West started viewing him as a threat to the Western-based hegemony that was had been established over, over uh, Russia. So, you know, this is a problem that you, when you combine NATO expansion with a leader that's now viewed as a threat, NATO expansion is no longer simply about bringing a security framework over Eastern Europe to prevent Eastern Europe from becoming like Yugoslavia. That was the original thinking behind the expansion of NATO. We must secure Eastern Europe to prevent Europe from confronting a series of Yugoslavia type breakups and conflicts. But then as the expansion went over, you have Putin being perceived as a threat. So now Russia is a threat and that threat is magnified in the eyes of the former Soviet satellite states like Poland and the Baltics who have no love lost for Russia, so they magnify the notion of a Russian threat. And from a Russian perspective, they're now looking at an expanding NATO coming up to their borders that represents a direct threat to Russia. Right. And Russia had been speaking out about this. In 2007, Vladimir Putin gave what I consider to be one of the greatest political speeches in modern history. And that is addressed before the Munich Security Council, uh, where he was supposed to be brought in uh, as an act of surrender. The West expected him to bow down before his Western masters, to kiss the ring of his overlords, and to start playing the game of becoming assimilated into the West. Instead, Putin stood there in front of an audience of Western power brokers, and he chastised them. He chastised them about being um, acolytes of the United States. He chastised the United States about seeking to impose a singularity on the world. He chastised Europe and the United States about what had been done in Iraq after the 2003 invasion and occupation. The 
Do you not know what you have done? He told them about Iraq. You've destroyed a nation. You have lied. You have you've destroyed the international legal framework. He, and then he said the day of the unilateral um, you know, polarity is over. The world will now move to a multipolar uh, situation that Russia will be one of equals. The world will include many different powers, including Russia and the United States, but others as well. His speech was not well received. <laughs> uh, and, and instead of uh, listening to him, uh, the United States and NATO doubled down in 2008. Uh, the Bucharest Security Summit for NATO uh, formally invited Ukraine and Georgia to be members of NATO. Um, how, how, you know, how did Russia view this? We know because not only do we have the statements of Putin and others, William Burns, who was the amb U.S. ambassador to Russia, wrote a memorandum that was uh, sent out in February of 2009, the title of which is Nyet means Nyet, no means no. And what he was saying is that when the Russians say that they that the expansion of NATO into Ukraine is a red line, they mean it's a red line. They're not joking. They're not bluffing. And then he set out two things. He said, one, the Russian concerns are real, are genuine, yep. meaning that the West should not just dismiss these concerns as, you know, Russian, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, No, this is a real concern. The consequences, and this is a very important part of his memorandum, the consequences of ignoring Russia will mean that in the future, Russia will have no choice but to militarily intervene, which will result in the destruction of Ukraine, the loss of Crimea, and the loss of Donbass. This was written in 2009, pre-2014. And already, the U.S. Ambassador William Burns knows that if NATO keeps expanding, the, the outcome will be a Ukraine that is destroyed and which no longer includes Crimea and the Donbass. So the West can't claim, as Michael McFaul, who was later the U.S. Ambassador under Barack Obama, he has repeatedly said that when he was with the National Security Council and when he was ambassador, he never heard about Russia's concerns about NATO, <laughs> implying that Russia's just making this up. Well, he was in the National Security Council in February of 2009 when Burns's memorandum was written. So McCall is either the, the, the worst informed national security expert on Russia or he's a liar uh, because Burns's memorandum was there. Everybody was talking about it. Yep. Everybody yep. knew that this was a concern for NATO, but the West ignored it and continued to pursue. Then after 2014, when the United States worked to overthrow the pro-Western president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, through the Maidan revolution, uh, Russia became doubly concerned because now overnight, uh, Ukraine went from being a problematic but friendly uh, border country to a hyper-nationalistic, and when I say nationalistic, I mean the nationalism of Stepan Bandera, a former Nazi supporter uh, whose forces not only slaughtered Jews during World War II, but also slaughtered Poles uh, and Russians uh, in the decade after the Second World War during a 10-year-long uh, insurgency. It cost over 300,000 civilian lives, around 36,000 Russian security lives. Uh, this force had been under the ground, but now through the Maidan Revolution, we had brought them into the mainstream. We had weaponized them. Weaponized Nazi ideology is what we're talking about here. Um, and Russia said, this is a threat. And that began the threat to Russia because they were basically seeking to 
purge Russian culture, Russian language from Ukraine, which they wanted to be a pure Ukrainian state. So Russia took the Crimea to protect the Russian majority population there, and Russia supported Russian separatists in the Donbass to protect them from the, the Ukrainians. Uh, this began an eight-year war, um, and there was an international agreement done through what's called the Normandy format. That is uh, Germany, France, with uh, Russia in observe, observation, and Ukraine negotiated a settlement which would have brought an end to the conflict in the Donbass, recognized the Donbass to be part of Ukraine, but that the Russians would be subjected to a special autonomous status that was separate from the constitutional language that uh, made Ukraine first language, et cetera, et cetera, Ukraine. Um, the Russian uh, presidents, Poroshenko and then Zelensky, refused to sign it, not because it was a bad deal, but because if they signed it, the neo-Nazis that were now empowered have said they would kill them. So we have a situation where the Russian government, I mean, the Ukrainian government, Ukrainian policy is being dictated by neo-Nazi ideology. And if you know anything about the former Soviet Union, about Russia, you know that they don't take the issue of uh, Nazi ideology lightly. <laughs> 23 million to 32 million Soviet citizens lost their lives in a conflict with Nazi Germany. Yep. And um, in every town, every village, every city, there are memorials to the sacrifice of the Russian people uh, in that war. And every year they celebrate on May 9th, Victory Day, which is a day of celebration of the army that's liberated them from uh, from the Nazis, liberated Europe from the Nazis. Um, and so now to have this Nazi ideology uh, be mainstreamed in, US, in, 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 in Ukraine, people say, well, what? they're a minority. Yeah, politically, if they ran for office, it's a minority. But a minority uh, isn't a minority if they can use the threat of violence to coerce the parliament to vote with, with a strong majority to make Stepan Mandera the national hero of Ukraine to mainstream his ideology. So it's not a minority. They be, they've become the, a, 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 an influencing majority. So because they disagree with something, nothing happens. Russia viewed this as a threat. And so Russian military action that we, that we saw transpire on February 24th was simply William Burns' warning coming to, to fruition. Russia tried everything to create a diplomatic off-ramp. They reached out to NATO over and over and over again, to the United I States. Know. And they said, don't ignore us. Deal work with us. We can compromise. But if you ignore us, we will have no choice but to embrace the military technical response, which is this operation. So what we see right now is a military operation that has two primary military objectives. The first is denazification, the destruction of the national nationalist military units that had uh, incorporated personnel that, uh, that embraced neo-Nazi ideology, and the destruction of the political parties that, um, that breathe life into this, that mainstream this. Uh, that's, that's one goal. The other goal is the demilitarization of the Ukrainian military. What this means is that from 2015 on, the Ukrainian military had been trained by NATO to be a de facto extension of NATO. So even though Ukraine wasn't a NATO member, its army was a de facto extension of NATO. Um, their battalion, 30 of their battalions were considered to be interoperable with NATO, meaning that you could plug out a German battalion from a German division, 
plug in the Ukrainian battalion and it would function seamlessly. Um, for the Russians, this was unacceptable. And so one of their objectives is to demilitarize. That means to deconstruct the NATO military infrastructure that exists in Ukraine today. Both these military objectives are designed to, uh, to achieve a, a two political objectives. One is the liberation of the Donbas to make sure that Lugansk and Donetsk are under a Russian speaking sovereignty. Two is to achieve the neutrality, permanent neutrality of, of Ukraine so that never again, Russia can be threatened by Ukraine becoming a NATO state. Um, this is the, the, the purpose of the, uh, of, of the military operation. It's a complex operation. The Ukrainian military is very professional, very well-trained, led. They're putting up a heck of a fight. Uh, this is not easy. This is difficult, but the Russians are winning. And they're on the verge of, I think, winning a decisive victory that will achieve all of their political objectives in the not-too-distant future. Well, you, you, <laughs> you've answered all my questions. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the, um, you said something earlier. You know, how you were trained in the military, you, you hated the Russians, you wanted to kill them. And you said when you went there, it was eye-opening. So, so what was the eye-opening? What, what was your emotion? Well, look, I'm, I'm a, I consider myself to be a nice guy. And what I mean by that is if you and I meet on the street, um, unless you do something egregious to me or my family, you know, I'm going to shake your hand, we'll have a conversation, we can sit down and have a beer. We're human beings. Right. We share the same desires in life. Uh, we we want to be happy. We want to, you know, have a roof over our head, food on the table, raise our family, education, entertainment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, if you and I went to war, it would be difficult for me to kill you because I like you. I view you as a fellow human being. Um, so in order for me to actually go to war against you, I've got to learn to hate you. I've got to learn up front to hate you. I got to learn to view you as less than human. Um, that's just the reality. Uh, it, that's, and so when we dealt with the Russians, I respected them. I knew their culture. I read their literature. I read everything, but I bought into the evil empire notion. I bought into the Soviet Bolsheviks wanting to attack my family. You know, there's the old uh, Cold War sayings, uh, kill a commie for mommy, or uh, you know, better dead than red believed in that 100 percent that's why i was rushing to join the armed forces because i viewed the soviets as a threat worthy of my life to give my life up in defense of my country against this threat um i wasn't ignorant of of their culture their language uh, who they were but i had put it through a filter and hardened me to view them as the enemy and therefore to be prepared and be willing to kill them if called upon to do so now I'm suddenly sent over there into uh, the city of Vodkinsk, which is literally 750 miles east of Moscow in the foothills of the Ural Mountains um, in an area that had been closed to foreigners for since the revolution. Uh, so we're the first non-German prisoners of war uh, because some German POWs went there and helped build uh, buildings, but we're the first non-German prisoners of war to come to Vodkinsk, the 30 Americans who aren't there just temporary, we're building a permanent inspection facility outside of a Soviet missile factory that's producing missiles that are solely produced 
you hit the United States. In fact, when the first missiles came out, we, we would joke when we inspected, we'd name them. I think the first one we named Pittsburgh, the second one we named Des Moines, the third one we named Chicago, and then we were told to stop naming them because uh, it was too it was too close to the truth. I mean, it made people uncomfortable. But you know, so it's serious business that we're doing uh, that's related to the security of the United States. But this isn't about us coming in and imposing our will. This is a cooperative venture. This is us working with our Soviet counterparts to create an inspection process that they have agreed to. They're doing the same thing, by the way, in the United States outside of a U.S. missile factory in uh, Magna, Utah, uh, near Salt Lake City, with 30 people permanently living there, learning. And, and Americans are now being exposed to the inspectors, at this, the Soviet inspectors going, hey, they're just like us. They're humans. They have a sense yeah. of humor. My God, they laugh. They have a wife. They have kids. They have animals. They have pets. They love music. They love to dance. They love to play guitar. They love to do everything we love to do. Um, and, and, and that was it. I remember the the, the local uh, press, the uh, Leninsky Put, the Way of Lenin, um, Communist Party newspaper. And in the old days, you'd sit there and go, Communist Party newspaper. Oh yeah, you, you know these are bad people. Well, the the editor was a female named Elvira Bukina, I think. Uh, and she came along with her staff to interview the inspectors. And she's just sitting there. I mean, she's literally her eyes are wide and her jaws dropping. And she's just like, but you're humans. <laughs> we, were, we, we were led to believe that you guys were like that. And then they, they talked to us and they realized that we had all the foibles of humans, meaning, you know, we had some Democrats, we had some Republicans. This was in uh, 1988. So we've got a presidential election coming up, uh, you know, where, you know, and they're like, well, you guys are friends, but you're a Republican, you're a Democrat. How can you be friends? Because politics doesn't define who we are. Um, we go shopping. There is a Dom Moda, the, the, the house of fashion. Um, and I'd go there and, and, and pick out uh, cloth and, and, and talk to the, uh, bring the measurements of my wife and try and get them to make a, a dress for my wife. Um, and so they'd have to bring in a, a Soviet girl, uh, a woman, and, and they'd say, she's the same form as your wife. And I'm like, this is embarrassing, but you know, she's the closest one. So they'd measure the dress off of her. Wow. And it. You know, and it's just this sort of thing where you're we're walking around the town, running into the kids. Um, and, the, and we're playing soccer with the kids, teaching them to play softball. We're playing basketball against the city champions. We're having comedy contests with the Young Communist League. It, it was just a trans, transformative moment. And Soviet society was transforming at the time, too. You had perestroika and glasnost, two Gorbachev-linked uh, policies taking place uh, at the same time that the inspections were in. So we were in Soviet society at a time of great transformation, which meant that we would be talking to them about these, these major changes in their life their, and deeply personal issues like, what is my economic future going to be like? You know, how, how am I going to feed my family? How am I going to... Uh, and so they stopped being the enemy and they started being humans that you cared about. You truly cared about them. You wanted good things for them. You wanted their life to go well. You became friends with them, even though we weren't supposed to become friends with them. Um, and so it was just an absolute eye-opener. It's one that got replayed with Iraq because I went to war against Iraq. And I mean, I, I, you know, it wasn't a frontline combatant but I would do things such as gather intelligence and then turn that into a target uh, that would be struck 
that would kill Iraqis. Um, and some of these targets were of the nature that uh, there was more than a likelihood that Iraqi civilians were being killed. That means families, women and children. But it was a military target with military necessity, and the force deemed was proportional. Now, if if you're you know somebody like me who's married, who wanted to have kids at the time, etc., you would go insane, literally insane, if you viewed your work from the perspective that these Iraqis are human beings. You would go insane. So you have to turn them into the enemy. You have to harden yourself and say no. This is, these are evil people doing evil deeds and they must be brought to heel. And that way you can look at a target that you know people are in, you know the 2,000 pound bomb is gonna hit and you know people are gonna die and you're not going to commit suicide. Wow. So you become hard. And then all of a sudden the war's over and a few months later I'm sent back to Iraq to inspect. And I get off the airplane and there's the enemy except, damn it, they're nice people. They have senses of humor. They, they care about their families. They love their families. They love their country. They, they laugh, they cry, they weep, I mean, the whole thing. And you just realize at that point in time, just how stupid war is, how utterly wasteful and stupid war is. Because the people that you're trying to kill one day are literally, if you look in the mirror, they're you. They just happen to live in another part of the world um, under maybe a different political system, but they're not inherently evil. They're not bad people. And it, just, it hardened me to, again, I'm not a pacifist by any means. If you come after my family, I can go into hard and kill mode that quick. Um, it's easy, but I don't want to. What I want to do is peacefully coexist with the world. What I want to do is ensure that if there's a problem, that we exhaust every means short of war, find a solution before we talk about going to war. That the last option is the option that sheds American blood and sheds Iraqi blood or sheds Russian blood. Um, and that should never be the first option. And, uh, and, and, and that's sort of been my purpose, I guess, um, ever since leaving the inspection uh, business back in 1998, has uh, been to speak out in critical fashion of American policies, which I believe um, too easily take the path to conflict and don't spend enough time trying to search for a diplomatic offering. I mean, you know about a guy uh, by the name of Dwight D. Eisenhower, yeah, yeah, five-star sure. general, supreme commander of the Allied Forces, who in his farewell address warns the American people that the military-industrial complex is robbing the nation of the genius of the scientists, the sweat of the laborers, and the future of the children. And it, and it would also change the nation. Yep. Um, that, that, it, that, that what the United States thought it was would no longer be yep. when you allow the confluence between the military industrial complex and Congress to come in because now you've perverted American democracy with money and greed that's linked to war. So yeah, no, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower was a, was a genius. And the other thing about Dwight, remember this, he was the commander of uh, American forces during the, uh, during the war, during the Normandy invasion. And when he gave a speech about the sacrifice made years later, he wept, he wept. Um, so here's a man who you know, had been a hardened killer, um, 
And yet, in retrospect, he wept about sacrifices yeah. because he recognized that war is, it's, you know, a lot of people keep saying that war is uh, mankind's finest moment huh. because during, during conflict, uh, human beings do amazing things of, of heroism, amazing acts, science and all that stuff. But to me, war is, represents the absolute failure of humanity, the failure of mankind. Um, you know, so, and I, and I think Dwight, Dwight Eisenhower grew to, grew to recognize that, that war was not something to be um, embraced or encouraged or um, spoken highly of. War, when war occurs, it means that humanity has failed. And I, and I say that about what's going on in Ukraine right now. Even though I believe Russia has a valid national security interest in doing what it's doing, um, I would tell Vladimir Putin the same thing I would tell uh, Zelensky. This is both your fault because there were things that could have happened to prevent I agree this. with you. I agree everything with you. is happening. Every life lost, every building destroyed, yeah. everything didn't have to happen. There was a way out of this. The sad thing is what is ultimately probably going to happen in terms of the terms of surrender that are going to be imposed on Ukraine. Ukraine could have gotten away with half of that simply up front by saying, yeah, we'll, we won't join NATO and we'll work on uh, delegitimizing uh, these Nazis and we won't threaten Russians. And all NATO had to say is we, we accept this outcome. Look what happened, peace. Yeah. But no, we chose the path of war because unfortunately the, the military industrial complex when linked with politicians makes war an imperative. In Putin's speech this week, by the way, he came out against, quote, the military-industrial complex that's igniting this. And you mentioned about how the lead-up to this happened and how the, I don't know your exact words, but the, the allegiance and alliance in, of some sort between NATO and Ukraine forces. The United States and NATO... It's in this week's Trends Journal magazine, $40 billion since the overthrow of Yanukovych has gone to Ukraine. Yeah. And, and this is our magazine from 2014 about the overthrow, the coup of the United States. So we've been following this as well. You know, and now, to me, someone like you should be running for office in a new party or, or because the, the world is ready for a man that knows the real sides of the story and you wouldn't be you if you weren't where you were and I understand that because I'm me because I was on the other side at one time without going into my life and I wouldn't know what I know if I wasn't on the other side I was killing environmental legislation at the height of the environmental movement back in the 70s. At 28 years old, staying at the Willard Hotel and putting my meetings on at the Hay Adams. And you mentioned about um, the Marines and, and, uh, and, and the first Gulf War. I, I, I met Anthony Zinni, you know, the general mm -hmm. as well, mm -hmm. you know. And so anyway, I was on another side. And you were on the other side, you grew up in it. And as we, we grow up, we learn things. You know, you don't know anything when you're a kid. You know, you just buy it and learn it. But a man like you, 
and what you have in your knowledge and your passion and your care, you know, you need to be out there and really leading the charge of freedom and, and, uh, and peace. And I don't know, you know, I'm just coming off the top of my head and saying this, but, you know, you're an essential being to, the, to bring this country back into the direction where it needs to go. Well, I, I certainly uh, appreciate the um, kind words and in, in, in the note. I, I will say this. Um, I mean, you've seen, everybody's seen the movie Mr. Smith Goes to Washington with um, Jimmy Stewart. Um, and it's a, it's a great movie. And I'm not saying that I'm Mr. Smith. Um, what I'm saying, though, is that Washington, D.C., I've been there. I've seen it. I'm sure you've done the same. Um, you can you can joust at windmills all you want, but unless there's a f fundamental change in how the system works, um, it would be, I'll put it this way, and I'm just being deadly honest with you. When I made the decision to step away from the system, from doing the job as an insider and to be a critic, um, I paid a heavy price and my family paid a heavy price. Now, I don't care about the price I paid. I'm an adult to bring it on. But what happened to my family and what it continues to happen to my family, because there's ongoing ramifications. Um, knowing what I know today, I wouldn't have done it because it's not fair to my wife. It wasn't fair to my children. Uh, it wasn't fair to my immediate family. It wasn't fair to my, my friends to step out and try to do the right thing only to be beaten down. Um, and again, if you want to beat me down, come on, it, man. Yep. Yeah. But yep. my family was asked to pay a price that they didn't get to vote on. They didn't get to say, yeah, we want you to do this. Um, they've always been by my side. They've supported me, but there's just, you know, no other way of saying it that, um, the sacrifice they were compelled to make is a sacrifice that no family should be asked to make. And, um, and they've, they've made it. And so, you know, I would never again step into that ring because I've done it Yep. and my family pay, and I can't do that to my family anymore. Now that seems a little, if you want to call me a coward, you can call no, me a coward. No, I just, I understand. I'm at the, I'm at the stage of my life where I, it's time for me to stop being selfish about what I believe in, even though I continue to talk out about this, I'm not afraid, but you become an active player. No, it's time for me to instead turn to my family and say, how can I help you? How can I take care of you? How can I promote yeah. your, your stuff? And, you know, the lesson to be learned from this is maybe there's no hope for America. And what I mean by that is we might be so fundamentally broken that um, this system as it exists may not be worth preserving because if you can't get the finest, and I'm not saying me, I'm saying the finest people in America, the best and the brightest who want to get involved in making America better. And instead, when they do get involved, they get eaten up by a system that isn't designed to do the right thing. It's built to do the wrong thing. And in order to survive in the system, you have to make so many compromises that you become that which you originally wanted to transform. Yeah. How many people want to do that volunteer? So most people who would be great uh, people in terms of transformative government turn their backs on it, rightfully so, because it is a poison, broken cesspool that 
doesn't offer any viable off-ramp into decency. I mean, that's just, that's my very um, jaundiced uh, assessment of, uh, of America today. Um, you know, I look, I agree with you, you know, by the, you know, all you had to do is watch the Oscars, <laughs> right? But by the way, you know, I'm a, although I'm a little old guy, you know, I, I used to have, I used to teach close combat for many years. Okay. Yeah. And, and so I hear everything you're saying, you know, we meet on the street, we're nice, have a nice time. If you, you try to take me out, I'll kill you, you know, just to make it clear. The switch. On, yeah. the, the on-off switch. Yeah, well, yeah. The, you go the thing I'm learning there. Yeah. is I have a lot of people attack me now. And again, it's like water off a duck's back. But my whole thing is, um, you know, is, look, you want to attack me, three rounds in the ring, man. That's yeah. all I ask. Three yeah. rounds in the ring. Yeah. If you, you know, and then uh, you view me as a bad guy, you got three rounds to beat me up. Yeah. But I well, got three rounds to beat you up, too. But now what my wife is reminding me is I've passed the age of 60. It's like, shut up, <laughs> because you can't go three rounds anymore. Well, with me, it's, you know, as a close a little guy, I can't go three rounds. I got to go. I have to go a split second. A split second. You got to win that quick. That's yeah. it. That's the end of it. You know? <laughs> well, no, in close combat, that's what it was. You know, we, we had what... Uh, we're supposed to take down a sentry in less than four seconds. We're yep. no, 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 yeah. no, no yeah. hand-to-hand conflict was supposed to last more than 30 seconds or else you exhaust yourself. Yeah. Well, um, again, I'm not going to punch out a guy yeah. like you. No, you got to do other things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyways, but enough violence. Like I said, you know, I, I used to live it. You, you lived it. Um, yeah. We know what it is. And we understand the necessity of it in, in the face of evil. Uh, but... The, the, the world's solution isn't to train a bunch of close combat specialists. No. The world's solution is to train a bunch of people who reject violence as a solution. And that's it. And so, you know, I, I'm trying to get, I'm trying to start a new party, a new movement. And, um, you know, I'm thinking of who are the people that could be the voices and the power of it. And you've done so much. Again, you changed my life. And I, by the way, I paid for it too. You know, I, I had best-selling books, you know, this... Trends 2000, uh, trend tracking, Trends 2000, and, you know, in my magazine, I used to be on Oprah, the Today Show, Good Morning, I used to be on everybody, and I got blackballed when I said, <laughs> it began when I said what would happen with the Afghan war. I had the nerve to say, if Alexander the Great couldn't pull it off, <laughs> if the British at the height of into the Valley of Death, Road the 600 yeah. couldn't pull it off. If the Russians couldn't win, what makes you think we're going to win this? Why, you're anti-American. Yeah, and then with the Iraq later. War, I listened to you and learned a lot about it and started speaking out against it and writing about, about it. And I got blackballed from everybody. Yeah. So when you say about talking the price, I almost lost my building in 2007, I was one day away from foreclosure. So I went down for, I went down really hard and big. I used to be on, I used to be on CNN like four times a, a month back in the day and a, a Today's Show and all of this stuff. I got totally blackballed yeah. for speaking out and it's your fault because I learned from you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I apologize, I'll take full, uh, <laughs> full responsibility. <laughs> Thank you so much. And any ideas that you have, 
And I wrote down so many of the things that you've said that are so powerful. When I asked you about the Washington system, you said it's a poison broken cesspool. It is, though. It is. It is. And everybody and, who goes in comes out a changed person. I'll, I'll give you a little war story if you got a, a two yep, seconds. Yep, yep, go on. Uh, at, at the height of my thing, uh, uh, when I resigned, uh, I, when I resigned as a weapons inspector back in 1998, you know, I, I tested for the Senate. Uh, Joe Biden came after me famously, calling me Scotty Boy and saying that I, you know, I, I it was above my pay grade and all this stuff that I was doing. Um, and there was a backlash in the Republican Party, and I was a Ronald Reagan Republican. The Republican Party embraced me heartily. And um, the, uh, the, the the Jack Kemp, a former quarterback of the Buffalo Bills, who was the uh, Secretary of uh, Housing and Urban Development under Reagan, uh, and became a, sort of a Republican Party establishment guy, uh, called me up and he uh, he said, hey, um, we're, we're hosting a little function here. I want you to come meet some people. I said, what for? And he said, well, uh, we're, we're sort of the congressional, um, we, 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 we pick the future direction of, of, of the Republican presence in Congress. And we think you'd be a good guy to, to run for Congress. Wow. And I said, but I, I don't do politics. He said, we'll take, just come to the, the thing, let us talk. So I came and there was people there ready to write checks to make me a U.S. Congress. Wow. All I had to do, say yes. Because I asked, I said, well, who am I going to take? Um, I mean, they, and they, I said, because the guy who's in our district, uh, you know, he's a Republican. So I'm, well, I'm not going to. They said, no, no, no. We'll pick a district for you. We'll pick a district where you can win. I said, well, how can I do that? I don't know the people. I, I don't know the district. I don't know the town. How can I be the representative? Don't worry about it. You're a good guy. We have faith in you. You're our kind of guy. I was sitting there looking at all these people smiling. And, and I said, and I said what I probably shouldn't have if I ever wanted to be a congressman. I said, how do you know I'm a good guy? We know. I said, okay, ask me two questions. I said, what? I said, ask me my opinion on abortion and my opinion on gun control. Because those are the two hot topic Republican issues. They said, well, what's your opinion on abortion? I said, look, I'm a father of twin daughters. I couldn't imagine a scenario that didn't have them in this world. I couldn't imagine allowing them to have their life extinguished before they had a chance to be born. I said, so I would do anything once that life was created to keep it and bring it and all that stuff. They're all like smiling. This is our guy. This is our guy. I said, but you know what? Not my decision. Not my decision. Um, I'm a guy. The decision is the woman bearing the children. She gets the ultimate call. I would do everything to talk her out of it, but it's her body, her rights, her decision. So and they're mm. then they said you know, gun control. I said I love guns. I own a couple. Got them for home defense. I'm an expert shot, qualified expert uh, rifle and pistol in the Marine Corps. Um, and um, uh, you know I I, I I used to like to hunt. I gave it up after the war. But you know I, I respect hunters. I respect gun owners. Um, and I, I think the Second Amendment clearly gives me a right to, to for gun ownership. But I said but. It also incurs a, a right of um, the, the state has the right to protect itself from gun owners, meaning that my gun should be registered. And before I can own a gun, I should be uh, certified as someone capable of using the gun, trained in the gun, trained in gun safety, that you just can't grant this life and death ability willy nilly. So I believe that, you know, while 
Americans should have a right to own arms. I think that there has to be a process involved uh, of of confirming you know how to use weapons and that those weapons are duly registered with the state in case you ever abuse those weapons. Mom, they walked away. <laughs> Kemp was looking at me going, I respect you. I respect your integrity. But he said, you you just literally, you, you threw away a golden opportunity. You could have been a U.S. congressman. And I said, I couldn't have because I'm not willing to be anything other than who I am. You got it. You are. You know, and, 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 and that's the thing. And plus, I, as I told my wife later, I said, you know, I can't imagine what would have happened to me if I had gone to Congress. Oh. I mean, would, I, I'd either have been a one-term congressman or I would have had to make so many compromises. That's right. I'm not. And how can, right now, you can say whatever you want about me. I'm not perfect. I've made lots of mistakes oh, in my life. Oh, yeah. And um, But I, I can guarantee you this. When I wake up in the morning and look in the mirror, I'm pretty damn happy about what's looking back. I'm satisfied with this person. I think this person's a good person. I think this person's done everything that he could do to be a good person. If I had become a congressman, I don't think I'd be able to stare back at the person that was staring at me. And I don't know how the people, uh, I don't know how the people that are currently in Congress can do that with the compromises they make, the lies they tell, um, the portrayals that, that are out there, what they've done to the American people in the name of serving the American people. I wouldn't want to be one of them. Well, you know, I don't call it a political party. I call it a crime syndicate. <laughs> yeah, it, is. <laughs> it is. It is. They're murderers and thieves. Yeah. You know, what you just said, you know, the, the critical care nurses say that the greatest regret that people who are dying is that they weren't themselves and didn't do what they wanted to do in their lives. And to me, hell is taking that last breath and knowing you weren't the person you said you were or could have been. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're not going to hell on that one. So well, thank you so much. I might go so to hell on a couple things, but uh, not on that one. Yeah. Oh, Bill, I, look, I, I got my, you know, stuff too, man. Yeah, I, I love these people who had perfect lives all their lives and never did anything wrong. You know? I'd like to meet them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you so much. Okay, I, so I so greatly appreciate it, and, and I wish you all the best, and, and thank you for doing this. Thank you. Have a great day.